0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is best-selling thriller writer Linwood Barkley, author of the new novel, Find You First. Stephen King recently wrote a Find You First. Find You First starts with a bang and ends with an even bigger one. Barkley is a terrific writer, but he's outdone himself with this. It's the best book of his career. I couldn't put it down, and you won't be able to either. If you enjoy thrillers, this is the real deal. It never lets up. Linwood, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel, Find You First Yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, uh, very quickly, it's about a very tech
1: millionaire in his 40s who uh, has everything in the world, but the one thing he can't buy is time. Because he's now learned he has a terminal illness, and there's a 50% chance that it can be passed on to the next generation. Everyone says, well, it's a good thing he never had kids, but what they don't know is that he was a spider. Uh, Miles was a sperm daughter years ago, and now there's probably a number of people out there in their early 20s who are his children. And so after some soul-searching, Miles thinks he should find them, first of all, to warn them that maybe they need to get themselves checked, and secondly, who's he going to leave his fortune to? How will it be divided? And as he starts on this quest to find these people, they all start vanishing one by one. They're all disappearing. Someone else is is uh, looking for them at the same
0: time, and they're all just Spanish And so do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Find You First? I think it might have been a piece
1: that I sort of glanced at in the New York Times magazine about someone did a photo essay of sort of half siblings, to all from a to one the same sperm donor. And, and, uh, and it was a good personal interest story. And of course, as a thriller writer, you think, wow, how could that go horribly wrong? <laughs> and, uh, so I think that was sort of one of the initial kind of notions that got me thinking about that story, that a couple of other things. And it kind of percolated for a while before I really kind of got down to it, decided, yeah, this is the book I think I can do.
0: Well, what was your own writing journey that led you to writing and eventually getting your first novel published? Well, I was writing as a kid.
1: I mean, I was started writing stories around the age of, I don't know, 11, maybe 10, 11 years old. I started writing stories like crazy. I was, I was writing what we would today call fan fiction. I was writing my own stories with based on, uh, television shows and the characters that I was so taken with. You know, I, I would find that, well, an episode a week of whatever show it was wasn't enough for me. So I needed, I needed more. So. By the time I was 12, 13 years old, I was writing 30, 40-page novellas. Uh, my dad taught me how to type, gave me about a two-minute lesson, said, "Here's where your fingers go. This finger hits this key, this key hits that key because it's a lot faster than handwriting." And so I was cranking out, you know these 30, 40-page novellas when I was uh, in my early teens. So I always wanted to write, and you know as I got older, I started writing stories with with characters who were of my own invention. And I was writing novels in my late teens and early twenties and and sending them away. And none of them were accepted by any of the major. I was rejected by some of the biggest publishers out there. (laughs) And and we can all be grateful that they rejected all of them. Um, I like to say, you know, I could mail off a manuscript and it would be back from the publishers before I got home. (laughs) And uh, so I I went into newspapers at the age of um, God, 22 because I thought, well, we're going to get paid money to write every day. And so I
0: spent. You know I worked in newspapers in you know, various capacities for three decades and and so when you were working for newspapers and writing for papers, were you also working on novels at at night not at- not at the beginning
1: um like i said i joined I started in newspapers in nineteen seventy seven and and I was pretty busy doing that and then in nineteen eighty one I joined um the largest circulation paper in Canada, the Toronto Star and when i went to them um i was uh i i went in applying for a reporting job and they said well you know we don't really need reporters we're desperate for editors Do you have a lot of editing experience desk experience and i said sure <laughs> of course it was a lie um but i was good at it and i spent the next 12 years at the sar in all sorts of editing positions so you know assistant city editor news editor well all that kind of stuff and it wasn't until 1993 that an opportunity to write uh, again came up, and that was uh, a position for a columnist. Uh, and so I started in '93 doing three columns a week. I called it, it was a humor column. Although I say allegedly, <laughs> we write a humor in a newspaper. You know, if people don't get it, then what kind of column is it really? I don't know. And um, so when it came to 1993, I was back writing full time um, for the paper. But it would still be another eight, nine years before I was get back to writing novels. And I had an idea for a novel. I found an agent, and the first novel, which was called Bad Move, came out in two thousand and four. And I and I did and but it was the fifth novel that hit it big. So in around two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, I left newspapers for good and just write full time now.
0: Well, No Time for Goodbye was your breakout book. Do you have a sense of why that one broke out? Well, what helped, a couple of things helped. First of all, um, you know,
1: I had done sort of four comic thrillers about a character named Zach Walker. And, and they got some nice reviews, but they didn't sell particularly well. And so my agent said, you know what? You need to switch gears. Don't write a series. Don't write funny. Write a big book, like a big thriller. And so I came up for this, with this idea for a book called No Time for Goodbye. And we, unlike the other books, which had only been sold in North America, we got deals in Germany and we got deals in UK and so forth for that book. But what really helped was when it came out, not long after it came out in the UK in 2008, it was picked by a TV show called Richard and Judy, where they had like a daytime show in the UK Mm -hmm. and they had uh, the equivalent you know, they had a book club, which was sort of like getting picked by an Oprah book club. And so they had picked No Time for Goodbye as one of the summer reads for 2008. And, and they, and they'd said, you know, if you get picked by Richard and Judy, the chances are your book will sell very well. Although I was convinced, always being the pessimist, that um, I'd be the first Richard and Judy book to completely tank. <laughs> um, but what happened was it became the fastest selling book biggest-selling book ever in the history of the Richard and Judy Book Club. It just took off. And so the summer of 2008, we did seven straight weeks at number one in the UK, and it finished out the year as the single best-selling novel of the year. So that TV show was a real help. I mean, the interesting thing is, in the week before, like that book was selling at one point something like, I don't know, 5,000 copies a day in the UK. And in the week before Richard and Judy picked it, It had sold 11 copies. So that helped. So, (laughs) well, so that having that book, having been uh, picked up as a, you know, getting that kind of attention, then it was sold in France and it was a big bestseller in France. And, you know, and that's when I was thought, yeah, it's safe that I gave up the day job. The newspaper things are going to be okay. And so that was, it was kind of like getting, you know, at book five, getting launched out of the cannon. Well, everybody in the UK thinks it my, was my first book, when in fact, it was the fifth. Right. Well,
0: that's, that changed everything for me, was that book. Great. Well, given the number of novels that you write, do you start thinking about your next book while you're working and finishing the previous novel, or do you literally sit down to a blank page when you start working on a new novel? I tend to just think about
1: one book at a time. I mean, sometimes you're forced to think about two only because you might be in the thick of writing a novel and you get page proofs back from the, you know, a book that's going to come out very shortly. So then you're kind of in two books, your head's in two books at once. But I don't, I don't write, you know, two books at a time. Um, So excuse me, I keep a focus on the one. But it doesn't mean that, you know, I hear some people say, oh, well, they they can't even read another book while they're working on a book. And I think, well, that's just crazy. Cause then I'd never get a chance to read <laughs> anything else because I do a book a year, you know? So, so that doesn't happen. But, um, but i right now I've, you know, I've done the second draft of what would be the 2022 book. Uh, I've done a big rewrite on that. And I really need to start writing a new book probably by September, October. And as I speak to you now, I have absolutely no idea what it's going to be. <laughs>
0: So, so what do you have a process, um, when you're sitting down and brainstorming or is it a matter of just, uh, kind of writing and see what happens? Well, what what is your process like?
1: Well, first of all, I need, before I start writing, I need a really good what if. And, and, and like when, let's talk about no time for goodbye, no time for goodbye was about a girl who has a big fight with her parents. She goes to bed one night, she's 14 years old. She has a big fight with her parents because she's been out drinking. And, uh, when she wakes up in the morning, the house is empty and, uh, her parents are gone, her brother's gone and they don't come home at the end of that day. And 25 years go by and she's never known what happened to them. You know, were they, did they, did, were they somehow, did somebody kill all of them and somehow miss her or did they decide to leave and not take her with them? And what would be worse? What would be worse? Would it be worse to find out everyone in your family was dead or that they were alive and didn't want. So I had that what if in my head, that. And and I talked to my agent about it and said she said that's it, that's a great that's a great hook for a thriller and because she loves to know everything, she's she says what happened to the family and I said I have no idea. <laughs> he said that's okay, you'll figure that out. So I had so when I have a what I would call a great what if, what if this happened? I don't start writing that at that point. Then I think, okay, I need to know what set of circumstances happened that brought us to that moment that created that. And I want to know who did what I want to know who the bad guy is. I want to know all this stuff before I start writing. I'd like to know where I'm going to end up. But when I have that rough idea of everything, then I decide I'll start writing because I, you know, even though I know my beginning and I know my ending, I have no sense of what's in that, what I call the big mushy middle. And uh, so I don't see what opportunities exist in the book until I get going. So, it's kind of like if you get in a car in in New York and you're going to drive to LA, you know where you're going, you know, that's where you want to end up, but there are about a hundred ways to get there. And so once I start writing, I just start picking different routes. You know, how am I going to get there?
0: And do you ever um, run into situations where you have to either cut out sections or go back and do some rewriting?
1: Oh yeah, um, for sure. But I did learn a lesson. I did a book about twelve, thirteen years ago, um, under contract. I was writing a book under contract. And I wrote this whole book, and the whole time I was writing it, I thought, well, I know there's a problem there, and I know there's a problem there, but I'll 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 fix those when I go back to it afterwards. And I finished that novel and my agent read it, and she said, Wow, what a what a holy mess this is. She said, <laughs> she said she's and she said you could write another book from scratch in less time than it would take to fix everything that's not working in this book. She said, it's, it's actually, she said, it's publishable. But after a hit like No Time For Goodbye, you can't go into the marketplace with a book, anything that's you know less than great. And so I didn't, I just put aside, I didn't even try to fix that book. I never did try to fix it. And I started on another book. But what that taught me was that when there's a voice in the back of your head saying there's a problem, stop. So when I encounter a problem, think that things aren't working right, that I don't, I don't keep going. I stop and figure out what the situation is, what the problem is. So, you know, when it comes to actually running a first draft or going along, I, I don't tend to have to go back and redo a lot of things. Um,
2: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
1: Because I think I've made stops when I had to and figure out where I'm going. Now, once it's all done and once my editors read it, they may think, you know what, this isn't working or this character's not working. And then I go back in and I start performing surgery. But, you know, if I feel like it's not quite right, I'll just take a breather and and try to figure out what to, how to fix it.
0: So have you ever gone back to that book and tried to no, diagnose it? No,
1: I'm never going to. Got it. Um, I'm just, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not worth salvaging. Um, It has some sort of, it has kind of underlying problem with the whole, with, with the book, I think. And I can say it's okay, but it's just not, it's, it's not, not great. Worth, And, and, uh, I should probably, you know, destroy it because if I ever reach the stage in my career where people think it's worth publishing stuff after I'm dead, that shouldn't be published. They should just get
2: rid of it.
0: (laughs) Well, you, you mentioned, um, earlier that you just finished the second draft of your 2022 book. Uh, What What is that second draft for you? What is that usually? Is it what you were referring to just a moment ago where you're going in and, 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 and doing surgery and fixing some things that your editors may have pointed out. Yeah. So I, you know, I, and I have
1: two main editors, one in New York
0: or one in London,
1: and, and then they both read it and then they confer and they come to agreement on what they think the book most needs. And then it's, you know, present a set of notes of uh, uh, so forth. And so they had, they had a lot of suggestions, not all of which I agreed, but they had one major one where they felt one character as currently written wasn't working. And and so I thought, yeah, okay. I think I'll take that. And so that that character's appearances and mentions were just riddled throughout the whole book. So it was a case of sort of very selective surgery going through everywhere and making a change here and there. And then there'd be a whole chapter that had to be redone. It's all about that character and so forth. So so that was the case where that you know that I had to do that. I had one novel a few years ago uh called what was that one oh it was the tap on the window where the feeling and this was a more serious kind of problem where sort of the the underlying foundation the actual sort of crime the event that makes everything else happen that it didn't work and and so that was kind of like lifting a house off the foundation and redoing all of the basement and then putting it back down on top it was kind of like that so and i was able to keep an awful lot of that book but what what was really happening up below the the surface had to all be redone. That was probably the biggest and worst, you know, I mean, I think the book came out really, really well. I think it's one of my best books, but the process of it was very difficult.
0: And are you willing to to mention what the original draft, what the the crime was that wasn't working? Oh, well, it's hardly, it hardly even matters. It's just that
1: it was, what okay. was, it doesn't really matter. And of course, then I'd have to explain what the real crime was and then that would well you know? but it just was like you know what what's driving the story what event did it's kind of was like what event did somebody see right that spark dot that set off this all these dominoes and what that person saw we decided was didn't work so we needed to see something else and so uh once that was sort of figured out then i could get back to it and figure it all out but that was a tough
0: one got it Well, given your success, uh, a a lot of success, a lot of bestsellers to date, what writing advice would you offer for someone who's listening, who is working on their own stories and novels?
1: Well, uh, that's always tricky because every writer I know has had a different path and has come at this in a different way. You know, I could say, well, a really good good way to get your book published would be to go work in newspapers for 30 years and get a column (laughs) for 14. That's not really very helpful. You know, uh, so more <laughs> general advice is I always can tend to give is first of all, read a lot you know people. i some people I've heard say things like, "Well, I really want to write a book, but I don't really have time to read, and that's like, well, I want to be a chef, but I don't like eating that much, you know and <laughs> and and uh, and so the first thing is always read and because just reading in itself is an education because you read different people and you see how they do what they do. And, and the other is you just can't, don't give up. Um, like I said, I mean, I was writing novels in my, in my, to my twenties, probably up until I age of 25, I was writing novels and sending them off. None of those were published. And my first novel was published when I was 49. Now that's either really discouraging advice <laughs> or it's it, the point of the story is keep writing and keep at it. And there was a gap in there too, where I wasn't writing novels. I was just too busy and working in the newspapers. I mean, when you work, when you're an overnight editor. You come into work at eleven o'clock at night on the city desk and go home at six in the morning. You're too tired to do anything else. Yeah, and, uh, that did that. I mean, that's, I studied that for two years straight at one point. So it's always reading and, and writing and and uh, and I think another. I mean, I'm trying to think of I think useful. Don't follow trends. You know, if everybody's reading the Da Vinci Code, don't write a Da Vinci Code book. They're right. all doing, they're all writing a vampire books. Don't do a vampire book because by the time you finish it and by the time you find somebody who wants to, might want to publish it, by the time they would actually get it out into the market, that phase, that, that fad is over. So don't, don't do that. Just come up with something of your own. And, and the other thing I have too, is that, excuse me, she I have a drink of water? Is that, you know, it's, it's very tricky to come up with something that's really and totally new. And what you have to think is, well, maybe this has been done before, but it hasn't been done by me. What can I bring to this, this story that's different or that hasn't been done before or that I can give it a voice or do something with it that has not been done before? And uh, and I think that's that's part of it.
0: Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Nonfiction? Either uh, fiction or nonfiction. Oh, no. um, you know, it's
1: funny. And of course, during the pandemic, I've been reading so much that I just put, I finish a book and I put it down and I pick up something else. And I don't even remember what I finished. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I did read, I finished yesterday or the day before. Uh, um, uh, Mike, uh, um, uh, Mark Billingham, the crime writer over in, in England, mm-hmm. his latest is coming out this summer. Which is called Rabbit Hole. And it's fantastic. And before that, I had read uh, Michael Robotham's uh, uh, his latest, I think, called When She Was Good. So those are a couple of very good books that I've read recently. Uh, I had a chance to read an advanced copy of Claire McIntosh's Hostage, which is coming out, I think, very soon. Um, so I've been, you know, reading lots of different things. I'm trying to think what the last thing I read in nonfiction was. Um, it might have been Obama's book, uh, which, you know, I really enjoyed those kind of books are really interesting With and it's not usually the political stuff it's the little personal stuff that you would never know about i love so i and I, so i don't read just fiction i read nonfiction as well although probably less of that um and there's a big stack next to the bed of stuff <laughs> you know, that i want to get to
0: great well again we've been speaking with linwood barkley author of the new novel find you first The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Linwood, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, my pleasure. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Linwood Barclay's novel, Find You First, narrated by George Newbern, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. You're
2: dying. Dr. Alexandra Nyman was expecting some reaction when she delivered her diagnosis, but Miles Cookson was busy looking at his phone. Did you hear me? Alexandra asked. I know that's blunt, but you've always told me to be straight with you. There's no way to sugarcoat this. She'd come around her desk and was sitting in a leather chair next to Miles's, angled slightly so that her right knee was inches away from his left. She held a file folder with a half an inch of paperwork stuffed into it. Miles, still staring at the phone, both thumbs tapping away, said I'm looking it up You don't have to look it up, she said I'm sitting right here, ask me anything you want He glanced at her You're wrong, Alex, I can't be dying, I'm fucking 42 years old It's something else, has to be, look at me for Christ's sake She did Miles presented as someone in good shape 5'8", trim at 160 pounds She knew he'd run marathons into his thirties and still jogged a few times a week. Nearly bald, but he made it work in a Patrick Stewart kind of way. Miles, we did the tests, and they... Fuck the tests, he said, putting down the phone and looking her in the eye. All my so-called symptoms? You can put them all down to stress. Are you telling me you've never been short-tempered or restless or have things slip your mind now and then? And yeah, okay, I've been a bit clumsy, falling over my own feet but it can't be what you're saying. She said nothing, but decided to let him vent. Jesus, Miles whispered. How could I? It's tension, stress, simple as that. You fucking doctors, you're always looking for trouble where there isn't any. Finding a way to justify all those years you went to school. Alexandra frowned, but not critically. She understood the anger. Sorry, Miles said. Cheap shot. It's okay. It's it's a lot to take in. I know. It's not stress, is it? If all you had was some restlessness, a bit of forgetfulness, even the odd mood swing, I would agree with you. But stress doesn't explain the involuntary body movements, the jerking, the twitching. You've been... Fuck, he said. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And I should clarify what I said about you dying. There's no cure. There's nothing we can do. I can prescribe tetrabenazine, which will help with your symptoms when they become more pronounced, but it's not a cure. Miles laughed sardonically. (laughs) Why couldn't it have been cancer? There's stuff they can do for cancer. Cut it out, hit it with chemo. But this? There's no getting around it, Alexander said. Huntington's, it's like You take Alzheimer's, ALS, and Parkinson's and put them all into a blender. Your symptoms are very similar to any of those. But worse, she said nothing. The other day, he said, I wanted to put one foot in front of the other, something as simple as that, and my brain was like, no way, Jose, not happening. And then a second later, it was okay. Dorian, my assistant, had set up a meeting, told me all the details. Five minutes later I could barely remember Any of it I know I go through periods I I feel restless Like my skin's crawling I have to do something I can't relax He paused How bad will it get? It's a brain disease She said matter-of-factly You'll lose more and more Motor control Unlike ALS Where you can remain Mentally sharp While your body's ability To do things Deteriorates Huntington's Will impact Your cognitive abilities Dementia, Miles said The doctor nodded There will come a point where you will need constant care There is no cure They're working on it and they've been working on it for some time One of these days it'll happen But not soon enough to help me, he said Alexander said nothing Who's doing the research? How much money do they need? I'll I'll cut them a check so they can get off their asses and do something What do they need? A million? Ten million? Tell me, I'll write them a check tomorrow The doctor leaned back in her chair And folded her arms This isn't something you can buy your way out of Miles, not this time All the money in the world won't bring about A cure overnight There's some very dedicated people working on this Miles turned his head Looked out the window as he took that in